Welcome to BMO COVID-19 Insights. Visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19 for more up-to-the-minute insights. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the COVID-19 What It Means This Week conference call. I would now like to turn the meeting over to Brian Belsky, Chief Investment Strategist, BMO Capital Markets. Please go ahead, Mr. Belsky. Uh, thank you, and good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us for our weekly BMO Financial Group Coronavirus uh, COVID-19 conference call with Dr. John White from WebMD and our three subject matter experts from BMO Financial Group. This week, joining uh, Dr. John White, who is the Chief Medical Officer at WebMD, will be our Deputy Chief Economist, Michael Gregory, George Farmer, our Senior Biotech Analyst, and myself, Brian Belsky. And during the Q&A session, we have a, a very uh, great and unique opportunity uh, to have Dr. J- Dr. White and George Farmer go back and forth with respect to questions uh, in terms of real life, what's happening in terms of Dr. John White and what he's seeing, uh, but then also from an analytical and, and coverage research perspective, uh, George Farmer. As we get started, just a reminder that I pointed toward our BMO disclosures via the web link enclosed at the bottom of the invitation uh, that you uh, have received. And given that we are talking about very sensitive medical information, just a reminder that if you do need medical advice, uh, please direct uh, your any kind of questions to consult a physician and or healthcare professional. As a reminder, Dr. White is a popular physician and writer who has been communicating to the public about health issues for nearly two decades. Uh, Dr. White is the chief medical officer of WebMD. In this role, he leads efforts to develop and expand strategic partnerships that create meaningful change around important and timely public health issues. Prior to WebMD, Dr. White served as the Director of Professional Affairs and Stakeholder Engagement Center for Drug Evaluation and Research at the U.S. FDA. Also keep in mind that Dr. White is a frontline soldier with respect to the war on coronavirus COVID-19 as he continues to see patients in both Washington, D.C., and Maryland. And with that, I'm going to hand the ball off to Dr. White. Dr. White, go ahead. Thank you, Brian. I'm delighted to be with all of you today. Just to summarize where we are in in terms of the impact of coronavirus, worldwide, there's been over five and a half million cases resulting in nearly 347,000 deaths. What's important to keep in mind is that the top five countries are the United States, Brazil, Russia, Spain, the UK, and Italy in terms of the number of cases. And the reason why I point that out is if we had this conversation last week, Brazil would not be in the top five. And that's one of the biggest changes that we're seeing from a worldwide epidemiologic perspective. Cases in Brazil have exploded. And part of the challenge is how the government is responding to it. In Canada, there are 86,000 cases resulting in over 6,500 deaths. Canada is number 13 if you ranked all the countries in terms of the number of cases. In the United States, we have over 1.6 million cases and are rapidly approaching, which everyone expects we will, have over 100,000 deaths this week. What we've seen in North America over the past week is a varying degree of reopening. 
So all 50 states in the United States have some degree of reopening, reducing the lockdown, as well as the 10 provinces in Canada. And this past weekend, particularly in the United States, celebrating Memorial Day, we saw these large crowds, often without facial covering or physical distancing, at parks and beaches, but it wasn't unique to the United States. The mayor of Toronto expressed frustration at some crowded parks as well, as the governors in New York and California have expressed concern for some beaches um, in terms of the crowding as well. But let's, you know, kind of look at it realistically. It's been nice weather. People wanted to get out. We're definitely having isolation fatigue or quarantine fatigue. And the reason why I point this out as being relevant is it it pertains to the issue of what if we need to have a lockdown in the future if there's a second wave? I don't think there's an appetite um, for the same type of lockdown that we've been experiencing over the last few weeks. And I also said if there's a second wave. We don't know if there will be one. And sometimes watching the media makes it seem like it's a fate accompli. But I really want to point that out. We don't know if there'll be a second wave and what that will look like. We need to be prepared, but we shouldn't assume it's automatic. And as we continue to reopen, often in stages, from a public health perspective, we need to look at several matrices. We need to look at the total number of cases, particularly if there's a rate of increase or decrease. We need to the number of tests, and that has been challenging, uh, the testing issue, but I'm particularly interested in the percent of positive tests. And we really want that less than 10%. And the reason why that is, we don't want to just be testing those people who are most sick or have the most serious cases. From an epidemiologic standpoint, we want to be testing a fair number of people, probably more than 2% of the population, which is what um, the administration has recommended. We want to look at the number of hospitalizations. That's an important key point because, remember, most cases of coronavirus, people are going to be at home, they're going to feel lousy, but they're going to end up being okay without receiving any medical intervention. And we want to look at the number of deaths. And then just to keep in mind, if you're looking at the data, you always want to keep in mind that we're always about 10 to 14 days behind, given the incubation period of coronavirus. So we're going to see a week, 10 days from now, Um, what the impact was of this past weekend. Also keep in mind, heat and humidity is not a respiratory virus's friend. So I do think we're going to continue to see a decrease in the number of cases here in North America. But a key element is we have to do testing and we have to do tracing. And the Prime Minister in Canada did announce last week looking at a potential contact tracing app. Um, But I point out that the response overall to tech's role in creating an app has been lukewarm, especially in the United States. And you need a critical mask for it to work. And most of the efforts really have been focusing on training and hiring new contact tracers. So it's still an old school perspective of using people to do contact tracing. The big news last week from CDC revolved around surfaces, and the CDC issued a guidance last week pointing out that the virus does not spread 
easily on surfaces. And that's really an important point because for those folks who are worried about wiping down their grocery bags, disinfecting their mail packages, this new guidance, I hope, brings some relief because the virus is a respiratory virus spreading from person to person, typically through droplets. When an infected person sneezes, they cough, they talk to someone at close range, even if the person's not showing symptoms. That's why facial coverings play an important role. But just touching a doorknob, touching paper, isn't likely going to give you coronavirus. And that's very important to keep in mind as we reopen. The other important insight that we've gained more clarity on is that the risk of infection indoors is more than 10 times what it is in open air environments. And that's going to cause us to figure out how to be safe and how to feel safe as we continue to reopen and keep open. So if you go back to the issue of surfaces, we've learned from some data in South Korea that in an office setting, the virus wasn't being spread through touch points, such as elevator buttons, but by people talking to each other for hours, typically more than 30 minutes, in close quarters, in an unventilated space. That's, again, why the masks are important and the facial coverings, because physical distancing plays an important role. And that's going to help us reshape our office configurations and think about our office density. So conference rooms, and people have talked about this, might need to have fewer people. The meetings may not last as long. I think that's a win-win for everyone if we're talking about shorter conferences and, and fewer people. But if you think about science, and let's think about, you know, how policy should be guided by science, automatic doors and voice-acted elevators probably aren't what's needed. It maybe isn't where we should be spending a lot of resources. When we think about testing and temperature check, they have been imperfect from a scientific perspective because fever isn't the only symptom. And people might be taking medicines such as Motrin, they don't even realize it, ibuprofen, Tylenol, which lowers temperature, and, and they may not think to mention that. And then when and how often do you test? We can't be testing people multiple times a month. We just don't have the resources. But I recognize that testing and temperature checks might make people feel better. And we used to talk about these certificates of immunity, but given some imprecision of antibody testing, especially when there's low prevalence, it's creating a challenge of accuracy. So we're not talking as much about the certificates of immunity. And then as for restaurants where there's been a big discussion, remember I said that outside is less spread of the virus. So we'll be seeing more al fresco, but the reality is due to temperature and physical environment, it's not going to be practical for every type of restaurant. Um, and curbside pickup isn't going to restore their financial viability. In terms of public entertainment, sports and concerts, a lot of people are wondering about this. I'm going to be honest. I think it's going to be tricky for the summer when we think it's about population density and breathing on each other and, and um, singing, which we know can be a way of transmission. So it's n not sure how to do social distancing in these settings. So I think it's still going to be several more weeks till we sort that out. In terms of healthcare, the good news is we're seeing return of elective surgeries. It's actually primarily orthopedic surgery, which makes sense. People have a lot of pain. They want that hip replacement. They want that knee replacement. But we've also seen um, an increase uh, back to going back to normal in terms of hernia repair and even bariatric surgery. 
But we're going to need to keep in mind that patient outcomes might be compromised slightly as surgeons have to adapt and they have to prioritize that patient backlog. So we're trying to get people to come in. And how are we going to have that surge of people coming back in and address all the procedures that need to be done? We've talked a lot about telehealth over the past few weeks. As you'd expect, that's having decreased growth while office visits are returning. And the biggest decreases have been in for telehealth in terms of cardiology and neurology. People are coming back into the office. And that's something we've been encouraging because we've been concerned about the decreased presentation of heart attacks and strokes to the emergency room. But on telehealth, the issue is going to be whether these regulatory restrictions, which were paused during the public health emergency, will return. The, the issues of licensure, the issues of platforms. No one expects them to return, but we'll see about reimbursement in the future, whether there continues to be parity with a visit coming in, because that's going to impact utilization. We are seeing increase in terms of the number of prescriptions being written, which is good, including written prescriptions. So that means patients are going back into the doctor's offices, and we're finally starting to see lab tests resume, particularly in non-COVID patients. So I see a lot of positives um, over the past week. We're seeing a return of procedures and physician visits. I think we're going to see more and more offices open on Saturdays. I think we're going to see procedures done on Saturdays, which typically were not done to make up that backlog. I think we're going to continue to see regulatory flexibility. And I know others are going to talk about where we are in vaccine development in terms of where we are in treatments and diagnostic. And it's going to be iterative. And then I do think we're having more and more discussion focusing on science, which is important. Let's really nail down what we know about transmission of respiratory viruses and make science-based policy decisions as best as we can. I'm happy to answer questions. With that, I'm going to turn it back over to Brian. Uh, thanks, Dr. White. Let's keep the healthcare and biotech and drug theme going here. I'm going to hand the ball off now to George Farmer, who's going to discuss his current views. George? Uh, yeah, thanks, Brian, um, and thanks for that, Dr. White. Uh, always uh, extremely interesting. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit uh, more focused on a company called Moderna, which has uh, certainly been in the spotlight of late. We launched coverage on this company back on April 30th um, ahead of some uh, clinical data that was recently reported. Um, we came out with a with a very bullish outperform rating uh, on the stock because we we really do believe in this unique vaccine development technology that the company has been uh, working on over the past uh, decade or so. Um, this technology has proven to be quite effective uh, for developing vaccines uh, against um, uh, against cytomegalovirus, which is a, a, a kind of a, a rampant viral infection, which really doesn't cause symptoms uh, generally in people, but can be a complication during pregnancy, um, and has recently also shown some potential activity in Zika virus. Um, however, you know, certainly the spotlight has been focusing on SARS-CoV-2 um, based on using the exact same technology, and this is really kind of the prior work on the other vaccines has gotten us really uh, pretty, pretty excited about the potential of the uh, coronavirus vaccine. Um, you know, last Monday we saw a qualitative description of phase one results coming out of the company. This was a phase one uh, trial actually that was conducted by the NIAID, um, that enrolled 45 healthy volunteers, um, aged between 18 and 55 years old, 
Um, all 45 of those patients developed antibodies, antibodies that bound to um, the, the particular uh, uh, protein of interest that, uh, that the vaccine is developed against. And also, more importantly, we think is that eight out of eight patients that were analyzed developed neutralizing antibodies. Um, and uh, these levels of neutralizing antibodies were at least equivalent or above what was reported uh, from convalescent uh, uh, sera that was also tested in parallel. This sent the stock up a lot, um, and then the company went out and raised about $1.3 billion in cash. That caused quite a stir um, because they really didn't present, present any specifics on this uh, very small data set. Um, we agree that the optics look bad on this. However, the company insists that they needed to build up cash reserves in order to meet this manufacturing capacity demand that, that they anticipate once they bring their, uh, once the vaccine ultimately uh, wins potential FDA approval. Uh, they do have a grant with BARDA for $483 million, but that's apparently not going to be enough. Um, at the end of the day, we definitely need to see more of this data, um, and the company has reassured us that a publication is going to be coming out in several weeks from NIAID looking at data from all 45 patients. Um, so uh, in the meantime, I think we just have to sit still and uh, wait for this data. I think this is an example of where um, Wall Street and science uh, don't always mix. Um, Wall Street has their uh, has their agenda, and science has its agenda. But I think the, I do agree that the responsible thing to do would be to get a publication uh, in, <clears throat> submitted to a journal, undergo proper peer review, and then we'll ultimately see how that data looks. In the meantime, I want to focus on some new evidence that came out in the journal Science by the laboratory of uh, Dan Baruch, which I think is really quite interesting. Uh, he inoculated a bunch of um, monkeys with uh, a DNA vaccine uh, against the spike protein as well as different variations of the spike protein. Uh, he saw that uh, the mon monkeys developed titers of neutralizing antibodies, just as we, uh, that just as what was described in the human study that came out of NIAID, um, and that these neutralizing antibody titers were similar to both convalescent monkeys and uh, patient sera. Uh, but then took it one step further and challenged the monkeys to viral infection after they were inoculated. And it looked like that there was um, uh, uh, a significant degree of protection of lower respiratory tract uh, viral infection in the monkeys, which is really what matters most. Uh, the laboratory also went on to characterize the antibodies and showed that they indeed were, were doing what they're supposed to do and targeting the virus for cell killing by a number of different mechanisms. Um, this is really supportive, we think, of Moderna's approach as well as lots of other approaches that are using DNA and RNA vaccines, um, which makes us very hopeful that ultimately a vaccine is, is going to, uh, to become, to be FDA approved and will provide the, the protection that uh, is so desperately needed. Um, there are a lot of vaccines. Moderna is not the only one. Um, a lot of them have announced, uh, a lot of companies announced a, a number of them are going into clinical trials. Um, this is all kind of on a record uh, a breaking pace. There's talk there about getting this vaccine to, to, uh, the, pop, to the, the general population sometime next year. Uh, these are very ambitious goals, um, but no one's backing down, at least the people who are developing the vaccines. They really do believe that this can happen. Uh, Moderna has even gone so far as saying that phase two trial data could support 
uh, use uh, availability of the vaccine in healthcare workers ahead of time, ahead of formal FDA approval. Uh, who knows if they'll uh, sign up and actually take the vaccine without uh, longer-term safety data, but uh, that certainly remains to be seen. So uh, that's where we are, at least with these uh, with Moderna's vaccine approach and with others. And I'll pause there, Brian, and uh, we can uh, move on to the next portion of the call. Uh, thank you, Doc. Uh, thank you, George Farmer. Really appreciate that. I think we're going to turn on the macro uh, com- uh, commentary now. We're going to hand the ball off to Mr. Michael Gregory, Deputy Chief Economist at BMO Financial Group. Michael, thanks, Brian. Go. Good morning, everyone. Well, yesterday uh, we got Bank of Canada Governor Paulus's uh, uh, proverbial swan song, his last major speech before retiring on June 2nd and being replaced by Tiff Macklem, uh, who will have his first policy meeting on June 3rd. Uh, Paulus uh, said while a minority of observers worry about the inflationary consequences of the current extreme policies practiced by the bank and also the Fed, they are designed to stave off deflation and economic depression. And known for his colorful metaphors, Paulo said, and I quote, picture the pandemic creating a giant deflationary crater in the middle of the economy. It takes what looks like inflationary policies to offset it, unquote. We're still, we're still learning how deep the crater is and how long it'll take to climb out of it. Uh, this week on Friday, we get the Canadian GDP data for March and Q1, Recall Statistics Canada uh, released a flash estimate more than a month ago. It said the economy contracted 9% in the month of March alone, which dragged down the full Q1 figure by a 10% annual rate. Now, since then, the data have indicated a smaller but still severe contraction. For example, since last week's COVID call, March retail sales volumes were reported down 8.2%, but the larger wholesale sector saw volumes down 2.8%. Uh, we reckon Friday's figure might be more like down 6 to 7% in the month alone, with the full quarter contracting an annualized 7%, more in line with what other countries have experienced. And, of course, Q2 is going to be several times worse. In the U.S., last week's 30% plummet in housing starts, 21% drop in building permits, an 18% fall in existing home sales, all for April, were followed up today with a tiny, admittedly less than 1% gain in new home sales. And this lives up to the latter's reputation as being notoriously volatile and difficult to predict. But marking the pandemic's economic nadir, nearly all April indicators are looking or are going to look horrendous. In the U.S. this week, We also get durable goods orders on Thursday, expected down 20%, and personal spending on Friday, expected down 13%, both registering record reductions. Now, tomorrow we get the Fed's beige book prepared for the June 10-11 FOMC meeting, and it surveys regional business conditions over the interval from April 7th to May 18th, so it will pick up the start of the reopenings. However, the May economic indicators are already revealing another month of recession, albeit nowhere near as bad as April. We have been seeing this with the regional Fed factory indicators, and they've been sporting large negatives, but just not as bad as April's readings. Next week, we'll see another month of major job losses on both sides of the border, but again, not as bad as April. 
Note that in the four latest weeks, we've seen more than 10 million Americans apply for unemployment insurance. One final word on the U.S. consumer. Along with the record 13% reduction in personal spending, we're expecting a hefty drop in personal income, about half that pace, reflecting the job losses that we had in the month. This means the savings rate, already greater than 13%, likely topped a record high 17.3% in April. This means that consumers have a little gas in the tank to drive spending during the reopening process and help kickstart the economic recovery. Now, during the past couple of weeks, as uh, uh, Dr. White has said, you know, all states and provinces have begun to reopen, albeit with different degrees of uh, caution. This should ensure that June and July are much stronger for both the U.S. and Canadian economies. However, the vigor of these recoveries will ultimately be dictated by how many of the laid-off and furloughed workers get their jobs back and, of course, whether or not the coronavirus comes back. These are, in fact, the darkest clouds hanging over the economic outlook at this time. And with that, Brian, I'll turn things back to you. I appreciate that, Michael. As long as you have the microphone, I want to ask you a quick question. So clearly, you know, modeling during this pandemic environment has been just near impossible at times. As as you've been working with your team and the great team with you and Doug Porter over the last several weeks, what has been kind of the biggest positive surprise in your modeling? And then what has really been the, the biggest negative surprise that has really kind of shocked you on either side of the pale? What, what's really What's, what has been the biggest deviation? Okay, uh, he'll come back to that. Um, with respect to the stock market, I thought we'd talk a little bit about the recovery. We are up almost uh, 40% in both markets uh, since the March 23rd trough, which, of course, uh, we've seen a violent recovery at first, and then we kind of settled into this trading range during most of the month of May. You know, many people uh, and market watchers and a lot of people that have been trying to forecast the market over the last several weeks, we have really tried to turn a little bit more skittish here as the market has been hovering near these these levels with the market here today, uh, Tuesday, up near 3,000 again. We've actually uh, eclipsed 3,000 in the S&P 500, and we're approaching those all-time highs that we saw uh, near all-time highs again in February. I think a lot of people are beginning to become a little bit worried whether or not they should be investing in these types of, of markets, especially the elevated move that we've had. We would tell people this, that the more you're trying to time the market, I think that's going to be a real difficult strategy from a longer-term perspective. We still believe that the U.S. market is in a big 20-year bull market, and it's just now um, a picture and a question of, of where you want to invest from a from a longer-term position positioning standpoint. There's several, obviously, very strong themes surrounding COVID and the social uh, distancing and and the like with respect to the mobile society that was in trend, was was in place before COVID, uh, actually strengthened during COVID, and we think actually will continue to be a secular trend coming out of COVID. But there's other things too, especially regarding technology in the United States, energy in Canada, industrials in both in both countries, and we actually think the broader theme uh, is only going to be solidified due to COVID over the next three to five years uh, in terms of money coming back to North America with respect to supply chains and solidification of what we've seen with respect to not only earnings but balance sheet strength um, in, um, in, in North American companies. So we continue to believe that the U.S. and, for that matter, Canada will continue to lead uh, global equities 
for at least the next 12 to 18 months. With respect to um, some of the other questions that we're receiving from our clients around the world in terms of rotation out from the technology leaders in, in the United States in this move that we've seen in small mid-cap stocks and value stocks, I think it's very, very positive that we started to see some better performance from the small and mid-cap stocks. Again, our call from an investment strategy perspective is we need to get a better feel from a longer-term perspective in terms of how first and second quarter earnings uh, come in, and actually, if we start to see expectations for the second quarter begin to improve, which we're starting to see the early signs of that, but we still need to see some follow-through in terms of analyst expectations for the second quarter begin to improve. I think that's when you will actually start to see in earnest uh, some some more broadening out from a longer-term perspective in terms of of that <clears throat> trend. Now, we have a very unique position here with Dr. White uh, and from a medical perspective and George Farmer from an analyst perspective in terms of Wall Street with respect to what's happening in the drug and biotech world. So I guess I'll, I'll start the Q&A session of today's call. I guess I'll ask Dr. White after listening to George Farmer speak if there's something that you can interwine with, intertwine, I'm sorry, with, with, with George's comments where in terms of what you're seeing on the medical side, and maybe we can see some back here, some back and forth between the two of you with respect to your comments today. So, Dr. White, I'll hand it back to you. Yeah, and, and thank you. And I'm glad to hear, George, that, you know, we all are talking about we need to see more data. We, we need to have it peer-reviewed. We need to find out what's really going on. And it's still early on. We have to remember that in terms of clinical trial development. There are a lot of hiccups along the way. I will say, um, you know, getting in the weeds, which sometimes that matters, is uh, the center directors of both uh, CDER, Drug Evaluation and Research, Janet Woodcock, which are the therapeutics, as well as CBER, uh, Dr. Marks, the center that decides whether or not a vaccine is approved, have temporarily left their positions heading those centers and are exclusively working on vaccine development and therapeutic development for COVID as part of Operation Warp Speed or, or whatever it's called um, in, in terms of really accelerating it. So I, I think there's encouraging news, but I've said this many times, I think we also have to look at history as our guide in terms of timing. And George mentioned there were several candidates in development. It's not just, you know, Moderna's, um, but, you know, we still have to have that objectivity in terms of data. My one concern is that we may rush development to show that we're doing something. And we may, it's the real issue is going to be how does the government invest perhaps in multiple vaccines before we have all the data to have something ready? So that's going to be a real issue. And, and I'm not so sure the frontline responders and health professionals will take a vaccine in the fall if they don't have the full safety and efficacy data. Uh, yes, I, I agree with you certainly on that last point and actually all of your points. Um, I think um, uh, one of the biggest challenges uh, is in ultimately getting to getting a phase three readout because as, as we all know, um, phase three readouts rely on, on uh, infection rates. Um, that uh, occur between patients who receive the vaccine and those who 
receive placebo. And uh, who knows how this infection is, this infection, the infection rates are ultimately going to be panning out. I mean, like you said, Dr. White, it's possible that we could see a decline um, over the summer. And then does it come, spike back and then come back in this second wave? I mean, that all remains to be seen. And if that happens and we don't see a second wave, then we may never find out if a vaccine is really effective using the conventional means of proving efficacy in a phase three trial. Right. I'm wondering, Doctor, yeah, do you think, Dr. White, do you think that there's another way we could maybe expedite um, getting these, getting a vaccine approved uh, absence of, 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 you know, I think they data. may use surrogates. I think they may use extraordinary regulatory flexibility and, and kind of type of surrogate or based on, you know, as you know, a lot of times data is interpretable. It's not, um, you know, gray. So one concern would be is it may be approved under an emergency use authorization, truly authorized, not approved. Um, to get it out there and then in some ways collect more data, which is not the best approach. We saw, you know, enormous challenges with dengue, um, and, and Sanofi's vaccine. We've seen, you know, challenges with swine flu a long time ago. So, you know, I know everyone is very eager to get something out there, but, you know, if you ask me, three months ago or two months ago, I'd say everyone, you know, would want to get a vaccine if it's there uh, and available. Now, I think as, as people start to see what seems to be a rush, people may not be as uh, gung-ho about getting a vaccine, especially to your point, if we start to see, you know, prolonged decreases and no resurgence, that could create a challenge too in, in terms mm-hmm. of getting, you know, the right information. In, in terms of truly knowing uh, if the drug is safe and effective. So I think there's a yeah. lot of this. I think we're moving at a good speed, but I'm just going to be honest. I don't think cutting corners uh, during this is, is the best approach long-term to vaccine development in general, uh, vaccine adoption by the public, and then just in general, you know, regulatory flexibility. Mm-hmm. And also, we still don't know how many people have been infected you know, that there's so many, apparently, you know, there are these figures out there, 40, 50 percent of, of, of individuals may have seen this virus, developed an antibody response, just never came down with with anything, any meaningful symptoms. Would right. those people qualified in a vaccine trial? I'm not so sure. And then I don't, would? I don't, I don't you know? think so. It's almost after the fact. Yeah. I think we will see more precision in antibody testing. I think if mm-hmm. we continue to refine those tests, particularly in the lab, versus point of care, that can give us more data. Um, I think there's more data to show that the presence of antibodies does confer some immunity, despite we saw some unconvincing data from a recent convalescent plasma trial. But, you know, the good news is we have to look under every rock and try every angle. But it's going to you raise a great point. It's going to be hard to validate efficacy, and it's going to be particularly challenged in the fall when we have a symptom presentation, which is similar to influenza to some degree. So I think we'll see yeah. a lot more rapid flu, <laughs> flu tests. I'll see a lot more flu tests than we typically have seen every other year. Mm-hmm. But the epidemiology is going to play a big role here. If we yeah. don't have the prevalence that some people think we did. If it's 
if it's truly, you know, two, three, four percent, that's going to be a challenge as we see the virus dissipate to some degree over the next few mm-hmm. months. But, but wouldn't you agree there seems to be a political will, whether it's right or wrong, to get something in production? Uh, I, I would certainly agree to that, and I'm sure the economists on the phone would agree to that too. I mean, once we, once there is, you know, a, a glimmer of hope out there, then that people can ultimately come back to work. Um, and does that have to do with at least having the notion that they are somehow protected, and that there's something that can protect them? I think that's going to be great for the economy. I mean, if you look at the stock react, at the market reaction, mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. to eight patients developing neutralizing antibodies to a vaccine without any specific uh, specifics. I mean, it lifted right. the entire market, you know? But what happens, you know, a year from now when if, the, if it wasn't truly effective or if there's significant adverse reactions yeah. from the vaccine, so we don't have adoption by the public of the vaccine? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I think in some ways we're further along in therapeutic treatment options mm-hmm. than we are in vaccine development in terms of getting something where we have good data, particularly in seriously ill patients that may yeah. be able to benefit. Did you, did, did, I'm sure you saw the uh, remdesivir clinical trial mm-hmm. result. Um, what were your, what were your impressions of, of, of that outcome? The concern I have is that they changed the primary outcome measure in terms of, you know, number of days and changing from mortality to number of days. So, you know, I think it's encouraging, but given the scarcity of the drug, the administration of the drug, I'm not sure long term that it's going to have as much of an impact as we would have liked. But I think it's encouraging news, and it's going to be iterative. So there are still other trials going on, so we're going to have more data. But in terms mm-hmm. of if we decrease the number of days um, on a ventilator or in the hospital, is that good enough? I'm not completely sure when the number of days is not that many, even if it's statistically significant. Is it clinically significant? Mm-hmm. Do, do you agree with that? And it's always challenging I, changing in yeah. point. Yes, um, actually, I, I feel I, I feel I have more faith in these uh, uh, actual therapeutics uh, targeting mm-hmm. um, the respiratory symptoms, the symptoms of the disease, the inflammatory process behind the yeah. disease. You know, like like the IL six receptor inhibitor. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I if, think, look, if you can just keep people out of the ICU, that's a mm-hmm. huge step. I agree. I think the issue of cytokine storm, as you talked about. On some of those uh, IL-6 drugs, I think there's actually the most encouraging data there than there mm-hmm. is on any of the trials so far. Mm-hmm. And, and we forget that there are a lot of other candidates in vaccine development. So yeah. we'll see. But as you point out, for eight, eight you know, patients neutralizing antibodies to have that much excitement, okay, that's mm-hmm. good. But... This is also a company that has never successfully brought a drug to market. Yes. Yeah. Really noted. This has been great back and forth, you uh, you two. And before we go back to Michael Gregory to, to uh, answer the question that I asked uh, during the macro section, I guess in closing for your part, Dr. White and George, 
if we could wrap all this into a nice little bow, and uh, I want to hear from each one of you. So, Dr. White, what what would you, if you had a one wish of Wall Street analysts with respect to what they're saying in terms of drugs and biotech, what would that be during this whole process? Uh, and then I'll ask the same thing uh, from George Farmer. What's the one wish? George, you would like from the medical community just to kind of wrap all this up into one big conclusion. So, uh, Dr. White, I'll let you start. I'd say, um, you know, perhaps the one wish would be to have measured responses to um, news of improvements in, in terms of on drugs. I think some of the responses have been wildly up and wildly down. And if we could have more of a measured response in both ways, I think that would help um, the public have less stress about um, where things are in, in their financial, um, their own personal finances. Uh, yes, I would agree with that. Yeah, sure. Uh, I just was, you know, analysts don't control market swings. We we comment on, on them, and I, I think for the most part, um, myself and my colleagues at other other institutions have been pretty balanced in their comments. Uh, but I agree with you. It, it would be nice to see just some sort of normalcy, some less volatility in response to some of these outcomes. Um, I think from my wish from the medical community, and, and this really comes from, I, I live in New York City, which has been probably the hardest hit city in the country, um, j- just having some sense that that things will be okay if you go to the hospital, that you, it's not that, that, that these, these, these images of, of, of war settings that we saw in, in, in the early part of the, of, the, of the pandemic coming to the U.S., that things have subsided. That, that the healthcare workers are secure with their PPE, that, uh, you can go to the hospital for other reasons other than shortness of breath. And, um, that's, that's something that I think, uh, you know, any, anyone would want to see from the medical community at this point. Thank you, George. And, uh, that's mm-hmm. wonderful. And Dr. White as well. That was just a great way to wrap, uh, up this call from a medical perspective in terms of your comments. We're going to go back to, Mr. Michael Gregory, we have located him, and we are going to ask him the question again. So, obviously, during these pandemic period, this period has been unbelievable in terms of trying to model what you're seeing and saying in terms of the economy, and there's been a lot of moving parts. So, we are just very thankful of your very consistent messaging from the economics department. But as you kind of go back and reflect on what has happened, what has been kind of the biggest surprise to your model on the upside? in terms of what you didn't see coming that actually was better than expected? And then the inverse, what's the biggest biggest deviation in terms of the downside? What's been the b- biggest negative surprise to your modeling? And with that, I'll hand it back to you, Michael. Sure thing. Well, sorry for that little mishap earlier, Brian. Well, I, I guess we do the negative first. Uh, in terms of our modeling, uh, I guess it's the extent of the job losses, the business closures, the amount of the economy that actually got shut down. As, as you know, uh, this it, it was far beyond anything we, we, we you know, uh, we, we were predicting or our models were suggesting. And, and so it was profound from that perspective. But uh, on the other side, in terms of the positive aspect that we were surprised by was the shock and awe of, of policy. Both monetary and fiscal policy on both sides of the Canada-U.S. border did things that we'd never seen before, particularly the central banks moving into areas, the Bank of Canada, using QE for the first time. 
which they lost during the global uh, financial crisis, they were loath to do it. Uh, so this shows that, uh, you know, uh, this is as bad things got or got worse than expected, that from a policy perspective, things were set up for that recovery. And it is more or less that they had to do this because, you know, we're on, on the precipice of uh, a deflationary depression. Uh, the other thing I think uh, as, as a positive and, and the last note, and it's more interesting, is the, is the fact that some markets actually, we saw demand and supply kind of fall at the same pace. I'm thinking specifically of housing. You know, housing was one of those areas where we thought, oh, we're going to see a huge decline in home prices. But in fact, we didn't because, you know, yes, a lot of the housing indicators showed declining sales and activity, but demand, you know, and supply kind of fell down at the same rate. And as a result, there's not a lot of imbalance in the housing market, which suggests that, you know, as demand picks up, supply will pick up, and we're going to remain in some degree of balance going forward. And I think that's encouraging, particularly from the sort of the mortgage finance aspect of things. Thank you, Michael, and it's a great way to wrap up the call and a positive note. We really thank you for joining us again today. And just remind you, too, on our BMOCM.com uh, website, you will see uh, comments and publications and content from everyone that was on the call here today, from George Farmer's great biotech analyst uh, analysis to Dr. White's recent thoughts, uh, as well as the great economic team's reports and investment strategy as well uh, from ourselves. Um, we really appreciate you joining us. Please stay safe and well, and we hope to speak to you real soon. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. For more insights, visit bmocm.com COVID-19. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns, Inc., and BMO Capital Markets Corporation, together, BMO. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options or any other activity, which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests, and you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets, insecurities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For full legal disclosure, please visit bmocm.com legal. 
To access our full disclosures for equity research reports, please visit researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure slash.